You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode is part of our ongoing series on the visual past in the Ottoman Empire and the Islamic world. I want to remind our listeners uh, to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a number of exciting visuals, photographs, uh, and images associated uh, with today's episode. Our guest today is Professor Kishvar Rizvi. She's Associate Professor of Islamic Art and Architecture at Yale University. Professor Rizvi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, we're very excited to have you on. I know uh, the curator of our series on the visual past, Emily Newmeyer, has uh, been seeking out this interview with you for a while on uh, your new book entitled The Transnational Mosque, Architecture and Historical Memory in the Contemporary Middle East, out from North Carolina University Press in 2015. Congratulations on, on Thank this you. new book. Thank you. So the Transnational Mosque uh, works on uh, the history of contemporary architecture, uh, mainly through the lens of uh, four uh, Middle Eastern countries, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit, of, we'll introduce the readers, give, you, give them a preview uh, of the work as a whole, and then in this conversation today, focus in closely on the case of Turkey uh, and the relationship between uh, architecture uh, and the Ottoman past, which is no doubt of great interest for our audience. So as you say in the introduction, uh, the book aims to analyze the role of mosques in the construction of Muslim identity through the lens of their political, religious, and architectural history. And you use this category of what you call the transnational mosque. And I thought this was an interesting category. I was, I was wondering if you could define the transnational mosque for us and explain uh, or how it's distinct from uh, any old mosque mm-hmm. that we uh, have in the world today. Right, right. Well, part of the premise for the book was to look comparatively and across the region of the so-called uh, Middle East. And so, as you mentioned, I'm looking at four countries and I'm looking at their state mosques. I'm looking at their state production um, and their patronage of what I suppose would be the most important um, institution, arguably the mosque. So, The idea of the transnational came from the fact that I wasn't limiting myself within the sovereign borders of Mm -hmm. any of these countries. Um, So when we're looking at Turkey, for example, I'm looking at mosques that are built by the Turkish government. And so these are state mosques built by the Turkish government within Turkey, but also within its um, spheres of influence. And hence the idea of the transnational that it moves Mm -hmm. between. Um, But it's also distinct from the global for Mm -hmm. example, because you could argue that, well, they're building all over the world. Um, In the case of Turkey, from Washington, D.C. to, you know, Tokyo and so on. But I don't want to use the term global because I I, I would argue that the nation and this idea of the national Mm -hmm. is really at the center of of this discourse. So your transnational mosques are built by state actors. Exactly, 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 exactly. And and that they're very much part of the rhetoric of nationhood um, for the sponsors and the builders. But also for the states within which they're being built, that is outside of the sovereign patron and so on. So they're sort of playing with uh, nationalist ideologies on both sides. 
So in this regard, um, who's the audience for the Transnational Mosque? Uh, is, is this speaking to Muslims abroad uh, in, in other countries, for example, when Turkey is building outside of Turkey or Saudi Arabia is mm-hmm, building outside mm-hmm, of Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia? Is it speaking to the states or the people in those right. countries, non-Muslims? Uh, Or is it both? Uh, How do you Mm -hmm. see the connection Mm -hmm. there? I think what was one of the most important um, insights that I I gleaned from the project was that each of these countries, and in each case, it's very distinct, um, so that for the Turkish state building outside, it's creating this idea of a nation, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when it's building in European cities, such as Germany, um, it's building for the diaspora, it's building not so much for the Germans who actually mm-hmm. might not even know that mosque exists right in the mm-hmm. center of Berlin, um, but it's work. It's for the um, for the guest workers. It's for the recent immigrants. It's for the expatriates and so on. So in that case, it's very different. Now, when Saudi Arabia is building in its uh, outside its country, it really is building for the local because part of what it's trying to do is convert. Right. right. So there's the Salafism or the Wahhabism that they're exporting has a very different audience than what the Turks are and doing. And where, where are some of the Saudi mosques that you looked at? Well, for it was in the news. Did you see in the New York Times? There was a yeah. four page spread. Um, About Saudi mosques being built in Kosovo. Yeah. Of which there are several hundred and they're actually a, a big issue because they are... Um, very much about proselytizing a yeah. particular brand of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, so so all over, the Central Asian republics are another very important contested site for mm-hmm. all four of these countries. Um, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and more and more the UAE as well. And we'll, we'll encourage our listeners to check out the whole book because it really does provide a fascinating window onto the interconnections mm-hmm. uh, in parts of the Islamic world today that we don't necessarily think of as uh, intimately connected. For example, a Saudi relationship with the Balkans is hardly something that comes to mind when we're talking about uh, mm-hmm. the Islamic world. And, and to see these uh, uh, really uh, inter-regional connections uh, within not just the Middle East, but any- anywhere where Muslims are living and even beyond in- into Europe, places that aren't necessarily considered part of the Muslim world in right. the conventional sense, uh, it, it really shows how... Um, these spaces, right? These these mm-hmm. uh, architecture, these visual um, representations of certain ideologies and expressions of power, mm-hmm. uh, really link together um, uh, that space in a yeah in a terrific way. Um, in this regard, one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we move on to Turkey, you know, you you worked on uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Emirates. I know you've traveled to many places even beyond to sort of see mm-hmm. some of these sites and look at um, these yeah. buildings. Uh, it, if, uh, as an example for our readers, um, is there a particular building that you can point to that was maybe particularly surprising for you, particularly right. surreal, something that really uh, caught your attention? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's actually, I was I really liked that question um, because I think part of what these buildings are trying to do is not surprise you. And that's what's mm-hmm. so fascinating about them in the sense that they really want it to feel very normal that you have a strange Ottoman building in Uh, Tokyo, Mm -hmm. for example, right? So, um, but I have to say, uh, the one that came to mind is the Koja Tepe in Ankara, Mm -hmm. um, which many of your readers probably know, or your listeners know, um, has this huge parking garage and supermarket, a hypermarket Mm -hmm. at its base. And you often have to, depending on where you get in, you sometimes have to go through the supermarket. Um, This is very similar also actually to the new Mimar Sinan Mosque. Um, So this particular kind of typology in the Turkish context where you come through these hypermarkets into a mosque is certainly surreal. Yeah. (laughs) It's definitely I, unexpected. 
uh, and I've seen this in Turkey and it, it, it really, you know, it seems like a, a very, uh, uh, anachronistic, you know, trying to reproduce a, an Ottoman mosque and having a supermarket in it. But on the, on the other hand, if you go to the mosque in Adirne, for example, mosque right. built by Mimar Sinan, you pass through an old market exactly. uh, right up into the, into the mosque. So in fact, this is, uh, Commercial spaces have been exactly. uh, tied to mosques for a very long time. Exactly. And just as the bazaar was integral to the Islamic building complex during mm-hmm. the medieval mm-hmm. and early modern period, today the supermarket, the tourist shop, and all of these things exactly. are very much part of those That's complexes. very true, and they were part of the okaf. So they were always, the funds from those bazaars, I mean, this is the same in Istanbul with Valide and mm-hmm. others too, is that the, the, the money that came from the, the buildings, uh, from the bazaar, actually then supplemented the income of the mosque. So that's Mm -hmm. exactly what's happening. But I think what's um, unexpected is that it's literally in the body of the building. And I think that's something to really interrogate and think a little bit more about the sort of consumerist ethos that is being played into and inserted right into the body of the mosque. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, relations that are built into these, these buildings. And I, and I like that a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, the buildings you work on in your work, you see how they facilitate movement between Mm -hmm. uh, different countries through tourism and pilgrimage. I liked the example you used of Iran and its role mm-hmm. in sort of building, uh, facilitating pilgrimage, pilgrimage networks surren- uh, surrounded around mosques and, and holy sites in, in the broader, I guess, Shiite world. Right. It reminded me of days living in uh, the old city of Damascus. I lived very close to the Siturukiya mm-hmm. uh, mosque. And uh, I would be coming home very late at night, like three or four in the morning, and there would be droves of tourists coming off right. buses, coming through the markets. You could barely walk by coming to this uh, site. Right. I don't know if they're coming directly from Iran or what's going on, but it was just like incredible to see this sort of, mm-hmm. it almost feels like the underground to you as someone external right. to it, but this right. like, in, immense flows of people surrounding these uh, buildings right. that are patronized, either renovated or built by these uh, influential states. That's right. And I think Damascus is another very interesting example precisely for that reason, because it, to suddenly see this fragment, it's almost like a shard, right, of ceramic that suddenly landed in this, you know, Umayyad city or mm-hmm. Byzantine or Roman city, you know, mm-hmm. um, that uses stone and so and so forth. And suddenly you have, you know, blue tiles and mosaics and all of that. Yeah. So it literally feels like a piece of, you know, ceramics just came and landed here. It looks very weird and strange and unexpected. It's an interesting way of describing it because you have that feeling. I don't know if you have looked at the uh, mosque. I think it was sponsored. Its renovation was sponsored by Iran as well. It's in Yerevan. So it's this oh, old... Yes. Um, right. Uh, I don't know if it's Qajar. Uh, at some point, Iran, you know, had, had ruled uh, yes. Armenia for yeah, a long time. Exactly. And you have this like renovated, very new looking uh, mosque. Again, it's in a commercial district of Yerevan. It's kind of of just like out of nowhere if you think of the context of modern Armenia where almost mm-hmm. everyone is Christian to have sort of this right. uh, project is, is very fascinating and playing with history in a, in yeah. a provocative way yeah. I mean when I think about it virtually everywhere I visited in the Middle East has these kind of examples of what right. you call transnational yeah. uh, mosques that again they are kind of hiding but, right uh, in plain sight discerning <laughs> right. eye can definitely right. find right. them right. and now you will find them all the time exactly Please, please, no.
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Kishvar Rizvi talking about her new book, The Transnational Mosque, out from North Carolina University Press. Uh, the musical clip you just heard is from our friends at the band Muhtalif in Istanbul, uh, particularly our friend Nurcin Ileri, who you can hear in a future episode of the podcast. We appreciate them letting us use that clip with us. So we've been talking about uh, building projects and mosques sponsored by um, different states in the Middle East, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, the United Arab Emirates. And, and our listeners can look forward to all examples from all of these cases uh, in the book, Trans- The Transnational Mosque. Um, to move our discussion towards uh, your, your section, uh, Professor Rizvi, on uh, Turkey and, and the neo-Ottoman past, the thing most relevant, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to our audience I want to I want to start out by asking you about the your your employment of the term neo-ottomanism because mm-hmm. I really thought that um, the history of art and architecture brings into relief what neo-ottomanism is. It's thrown around a lot in the press as sort mm-hmm. of a description of the current AKP government's um, sort of on one hand imperialist policy in the Middle East and on the other hand it's Islamist agenda. Right. And many commentators including our own Nicholas Danforth who, who is, who's been working with us for a long time have called into question sort of the newness of some of the mm-hmm. neo-ottoman rhetoric. But I think through the lens of, of, of architecture I mean, we can't deny that there's a, a neo-Ottoman aesthetic in play. There's some deliberate attempt to revive right. a neo-Ottoman style. So maybe you could uh, start out by telling us from, from an art history perspective, from mm-hmm. the perspective of aesthetics, what the neo-Ottoman um, form is that we see in Turkey and in Turkey's uh, architectural right. exports. Right. Well, as you note, um, it's very difficult to call it anything else because mm. these buildings are modern structures, uh-huh. right? So they've built, the ones that I'm looking at have been built since the 1980s um, onwards. And that's that, that's pushing it. Most of them are from the 90s uh-huh. um, until, you know, 2013. Um, they all use uh, the, as you pointed out, the classical Ottoman style, that is the, the work of Sinan, uh-huh. um, as a starting point. Um, interestingly enough, and this is very uh, curious that, and it's not restricted to Turkey, but everyone sees the Blue Mosque, um, uh-huh. that of Sultan Ahmed, as uh, an inspiration for this neo-Ottoman style. That is, you know, thinking through a particular dome structure that would have lead on it uh, mm-hmm. or some kind of, you know, um, metal covering sheet. Then you would have then what are called um, pencil minarets. These are very thin, mm-hmm. tall minarets. Um, and as Guru who has shown in her work, it really becomes a classical canonical style mm-hmm. representing the Ottoman Empire um, from the period of Suleiman onward. You mm-hmm. know, so it really becomes uh, a particular kind of an aesthetic, which then devolves and it changes, yeah. right? So over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, um, they become Baroque, they become really flora, they, they change. So there's nothing static about the idea of an Ottoman style sure except when we come to the present day when they really go back again to one century in mm-hmm. particular you could even argue one or two mosques um, and they copy them again and again and again yeah um, the only thing that changes is the scale I think mm-hmm. you know just the size of them will change but yeah. otherwise they're very similar 
and this is where the eye of the historian actually becomes so important. I know mm-hmm. that some of your earlier work worked on, uh, you know, architecture and art in, in Safavid, Iran. Right. So actually looking at these would-be classical um, periods uh, of aesthetics. And yeah, I really wanted to ask more about how um, Mimar Sinan sort of became the archetype right. for, for the, the classical Ottoman mosque. Of course, it's associated with the, the height of Ottoman uh, power but even even if you walk around istanbul which is to say nothing of the rest of the country exactly. i mean there's so many different types of mosques in play and, exactly. and these classical mosques are actually few and far between rare expressions of imperial power that in, that occurred in certain moments right. and this is why it's important you know your critique of this idea of the neo ottoman is very important and it can't be taken lightly because i think this idea of the classical ottoman style is also a very modern fiction mm-hmm. right so it's only in the 20th century when nationalist architects even from the period of Ataturk are writing about right. Ottoman architecture and deciding what makes the classical mm-hmm. style right so the Ottoman aesthetic as the way that we understand it very quickly mm-hmm. as a Sinan Suleiman you know Istanbul yeah. thing is a fiction that is created through nationalist nation building if you will mm-hmm. so the fact that it then gets reappropriated by um, the you know the AKP it now is not surprising mm-hmm. um, and it's also not new but what mm-hmm. they do it is they're appropriating it for a very difficult different agenda yeah so let's talk about that because yeah. I mean this is uh, one of the things I liked about the discussion uh, of the sort of neo-ottoman mosque um, again Yes, the current ruling party in Turkey is very uh, neo-Ottoman. They proclaim this out themselves to be so. But you actually link this development to the to the very origin of uh, you know modern Turkish nationalism in, in mm-hmm. the, the Kemalist period yeah. uh, and post-Kemalist period of early Republican Turkey, which for many people is associated with secularism, a break with the Ottoman past, um, the removal of many symbols of Islamic right. and Ottoman uh, heritage. I mean, are we mistaken in in um, describing um, that nationalist development in such simplistic terms? Or how mm-hmm. does uh, the Ottoman architecture and the, like, the works of Sinan creep into this uh, nationalist right. Uh, right. symbolism? So I would argue it never left, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think part of the issue is that it never really did leave, yeah. um, despite you know, changes in script and and uh, sort of you know suppression of certain orders or certain types yeah. of religious expression but the turkish um, republic simply incorporated the authority of religion right mm-hmm. so it's not that it said it didn't exist but it made it its own to control it made it turkish it, yes. it made it turkish um, and nationalist mm-hmm. right so it never really disappeared from what i understand we don't see it anymore right so we didn't see it in the symbols of the early republic as easily um but it was all always there whether you're looking at texts or writing or you're looking at um actually paintings um are very important source Mm -hmm. you know um artists productions and all and Mm -hmm. there's always this sort of need to link back to something you know Mm -hmm. that doesn't disappear over the course of the 20th century it might keep getting replaced and sublimated to some extent but already in the 60s with the rise of the islamic parties you you start seeing the rhetoric of religion and it's politicizing and its appearance into the public sphere which is what Mm -hmm. i'm really interested in that becomes public and it finds this incredible sort of realization through this monumental architecture right it's as public as you, you can imagine yeah 
I'm wondering more about the the training of architects uh, mm-hmm. in Turkey and uh, throughout time and how this plays a role in, in sort of the crea- creation of this uh, neo-Ottoman archetype. Well, it's very curious. Um, so I, I did have the chance to visit um, the office of Hasan Mimarlik, um, which is the... the, the uh, the architectural firm um, of Helmi Senalp, mm-hmm. um, who uh, is really the the designer of many of the mosques that I'm looking at, almost mm-hmm. all of the ones that I look at. Um, and they were extremely generous um, when I went to their office mm-hmm. and we talked a lot. But none of the young people who were working there had, had actually, I think there was there were one or two who might have had some background in conservation, but none of them really had come at it from mm-hmm. the point of view of architectural history. They were trained like students, whether they're in Damascus or Beirut or Tehran, um, as modernists, right? So Mm -hmm. the young architects training is to solve problems of the present day. They're not really being trained as historians. Yeah. And so that's where another disjunction comes in. You know, what exactly are they building Mm -hmm. when that's not really what they're trained to do? You know, they're creating an image, not necessarily a building. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to a paradox that a lot of architects in Turkey and certainly art mm-hmm. and architecture historians uh, will observe in a lot of the firms that are undertaking uh, renovations of historical buildings. Right. Many of them, which, you know, you can find them all over the internet. I think one of the best examples is the the castle in the town of Chile, um, which is now known as on the internet as the SpongeBob SquarePants yes. castle because it was so... <laughs> sort of tackily and strangely renovated. And, and you see this paradox of the immense concern for um, employing the Ottoman past in the construction of new projects with with a real conundrum over how to deal with the immense like architectural heritage that's already there and how to um, renovate it and, and um, sort of keep it going in a tasteful way. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so instead of thinking about preservation, we're thinking of reinventing yeah, constantly right exactly so the, the other e- example of course is that of Gezi Park mm-hmm. um, and the sort of building this new Ottoman barracks um, that are supposed yep. to then be a shopping mall you know mm-hmm. well is that really necessary right <laughs> I mean you you could do it in many different ways so it's always creating this image and almost all of them and so here's where the architectural nerd comes in is yeah. that you know almost all of these buildings are not built in the traditional manner right, right. so they're built with concrete and steel and the most mod prefabricated material, yeah. right? I mean, the most modern technologies. Sure. Um, and then this, uh, there's um, an image pasted on, yeah. um, which is, you know, as a modernist, one might find be very offended by. Right. And and the fact that they're that they're built also in this sort of centralized and very like uh, technocratic way in a sense. I mean, the, the mosques of old required a huge number of artisans uh, and uh, mm-hmm. whatnot to sort of put them together. Again, these architectural firms are employing large numbers of people, but in, at the end of the day, there's a more monolithic vision um, mm-hmm. uh, in in a, in a lot of these mosques. I think. Right. Well, what's interesting is that it really is one firm that has been mm-hmm. doing them. So, and and you know the the tide the the, the fact that they. They're called the court architect, I think, says mm-hmm. something um, for the way in which it is really quite centralized. Yep. And remember, he was building since 1996 or so. So e- mm-hmm. this is even before, you know, the full-blown, as yep. we understand it, neo-Ottomanism, if we want to call it that, or even the power of this government hadn't really kicked in mm-hmm. at that point. So they were already... The Turkish government was already building these types of neo-Ottoman buildings mm-hmm. before the term neo-Ottomanism was brought into the government or the sort of political rhetoric. Sure. 
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Kishvara Rizvi talking about her new book, The Transnational Mosque. Uh, this episode is part of our series on the visual past, and uh, I want to remind our listeners that as we talk more about some of the mosques and buildings in questions, you'll want to look at our website to hopefully see some photographs of some of these uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, works provided by uh, Professor Rizvi and, and myself. I'll pitch in a few as well. Um, so our series in the visual past is all about research that uh, offers a different way of looking at the past, indeed through looking uh, and, and, and reading um, uh, visual sources, which includes not only paintings uh, and uh, photographs, but also uh, objects, uh, particularly buildings. So um, to continue our conversation, uh, Professor Rizvi, I wanted to ask you to read uh, the vignette you've constructed at the beginning of your chapter on Turkey, because it really uh, allows us to see uh, the building through the eyes of, of, of the expert researcher, and I think gives us a good sense of uh, uh, what you see when you see these, these innocuous buildings that we often encounter in our travels. All right. I arrive at the Turk Shehitlik Mosque on a midweek afternoon. Airplanes thunder overhead. A strange, empty wasteland seems to stretch before me as I walk along the long, deserted avenue. I do not realize on that summer day that airplanes will provide a motif for a study that will traverse the Middle East, Europe, and the United States. The airport looms behind me, and ahead, the old Muslim cemetery... Both spaces are unsuitable for inhabitation, yet promise transportation to better destinations. A white minaret pokes through the grey sky, followed soon after by an imposing dome, topped with a glinting metallic finial. A bus stop and parked cars obstruct the view through the walls of the Shehitlik Mosque, located directly on the busy Columbia Dam thoroughfare. The area around the mosque is not built up, at least not in any memorable way. Its proximity to the airport makes it an undesirable residential location. The entrance comprises a small gateway with a large green sign announcing the Berlin Jami, the Turkish Martyrs Mosque in Berlin. The courtyard is made up of a small graveyard and a paved area where a ping-pong table sits invitingly. Directly in front of the entrance is a low administrative building and on the left a monumental structure in the form of an Ottoman mosque. The bright white mosque sits serenely under the German sky, marking its presence as a highly charged political and religious symbol. Sighted in the direction of Mecca, the plan of the mosque breaks from the urban grid, creating its own orientation. With its slate dome and towering pencil minarets, the mosque resituates the visitor not in the drab Kreuzberg neighborhood of Berlin, but on the sunny hills of Istanbul, reminiscent of the imperial glory of its Ottoman rulers. What I loved about that vignette, of, of course, the first thing is that when I hear that I'm about to read a description of the Turkshehitik Mosque, I definitely do not think I'm in the city of Berlin. I assume this is happening in Ankara or Istanbul somewhere, just with only having a vague sense. Uh, and the way you describe this this building um, in sort of the way it rises out of the urban landscape of Berlin, but also the vision of the uh, architect that's implied uh, in its construction, even without seeing the image, which we do have available for our listeners, um, and is in your work, the Transnational Mosque, uh, you start to see uh, the, the symbols and the elements that are in play that really define this, this Ottoman architecture. So again, you mentioned um, the construction of Turkish mosques abroad and their relationship to maybe a state nationalism. 
through through this mosque and through some of the other ones you look at, I would like to talk more about the political mm-hmm. ideology and project underlying some of these buildings and how we can see that expressed mm-hmm. uh, in the edifices and, and the interiors. Right. You know, I think it was interesting when you described um, this podcast really is focusing on the visual. And what is important to take into consideration is that architecture goes beyond that, right? So mm-hmm. when we're looking at buildings, and I think what these images in particular, those that are being built by the Turkish government in the sort of Ottoman-esque image, um, that they are dealing with an image. They are dealing with a particular branding, if mm-hmm. you will, yeah. um, of an architectural style yeah. um, and branding it as part of the Turkish government, right? That it's something that only they can build in a certain way. Right. We've actually had a podcast with Aslıs at New York University talking about the extremely detailed planning of Turkey's international branding and national exactly. branding uh, mm-hmm. by uh, uh, international consulting firms that mm-hmm. kind of help construct these uh, Absolutely. Images. These are very, very, um, I think it's all part of the, a particular kind of aesthetic that is being brought into play. Mm-hmm. And what is really at the crux of it is the politicization of history. And that's sort of the real interest for me in in all of these cases, all of these countries, was what's really at stake is the representation of history. It's mm-hmm. the image of history, but also what we do with history. Yes. Um, what we're doing is um, sort of really trying to define which moment in time matters, mm-hmm. um, and why is it not the present is a question to think about, right? I mean, why do we need to look so far back? It has a lot to do with the way in which Islam is understood in the contemporary world by Muslims Mm -hmm. um, and state actors in particular, I would say, uh, which is what I was really looking at. I'm not sort of generalizing to every Muslim community, Mm -hmm. but I'm really looking at the ways in which these four states, um, the Turkish government, for example, is constructing a historical political narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's doing it with history in mm-hmm. mind, right? In a very particular kind of history. Yeah. And so what interpretation or reading of history is uh, being engendered by these buildings? Uh, what are the political implications of that reading of history more specifically uh, and you know, to the extent that we can understand it, how effective are these buildings uh, at achieving um, mm-hmm. um, the, the vision uh, of the architect and, and the, the planners and people deciding to construct them? Well, one way of doing it is it's very instrumental, right? In the sense that you build a very large monumental mosque, um, mm-hmm. whether it's in Ankara or in any one of the small towns, mm-hmm. um, or if you build it in, you know, Turkmenistan, in Ashgabat or, or so on, um, you are bringing with the mosque um, uh, the imams. You're bringing people who are teaching you how to yeah. be a Muslim, right? So one of the things that I noticed in my fieldwork in Turkey, and it was fascinating while I was traveling, was meeting young people in their 20s and 30s who were learning to read the Quran and were yeah. learning Arabic in a very... Um, so, if, you know, they were doing it as young adults. Um, but if you go into the Kojatepe Mosque or any of these mosques, there is our Quran classes for children as well as for mm-hmm. adults. Um, the people are being taught to be a particular kind of Muslim. And this is the Turkish context alone. Um, so it, this is happening in all of them. People are being told how to pray. Mm-hmm. Almost all of these mosques um, yeah. have large um, plaques on them. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is very interesting to me when you go to Turkey or when you go to Saudi Arabia, um, 
it's a very political act how you pray whether you hold mm. your hands up whether you hold your hands on the side how you hold your hands how you hold yourself so the the sort of implications of training um and educating your public is very much part of this mo- the mosque's agenda you're also teaching people how to be in the world right i mean the way you inhabit your city the way when that's what these are these are yeah. large monumental structures in the center of these cities right. um that you expected to go to on fridays you know so mm-hmm. you're really changing in many ways the way in which communities have uh, see their place within their within the nation right. um as well as in a very local way within their own neighborhood sure. you know and this is you know in a sort of a sociological sense this is the, the exactly. production of space for the for a particular purpose um i mean is this about power is this about um sort of a power play i mean this is how people right. would read it right or right. is there something else there well what i think is really important to keep in mind is that it's a particular kind of negotiation nobody is forcing the people to go right. to these mosques and yet there's a particular uh force of of having a monumental mosque right there mm-hmm. you know so there's a lot that goes on um that i think part of the mosque is a representation of the state but it's also fulfilling a certain type of desire by mm-hmm. the public right. right so and i think it's important to notice and this is where again looking at um material culture and looking at architecture and urbanism i think we can really get a very different sense of the power of islam on the ground just now mm-hmm. right that it's not coming from the top down but sure. a lot of it is coming from the bottom up sure. that many of these mosques and states are actually responding to what they see as an opportunity um to define their public right and this is very easy to read in turkey where you know the akp is a very popular democratically exactly. elected government arguably not always behaving in a very democratic manner but certainly uh using islam as part of its way to um reach out to a very i mean this mm-hmm. is the work of jenny white now but a, a very yes. um uh a historically marginalized segment of society that is uh mm-hmm. socially sort of mobile uh and has has become urbanized uh in in recent decades but even in places like Saudi Arabia where yeah. um it's sometimes hard to see um public participation in the political process but i mean clearly you know with, with within a monarchy such as the kingdom of Saudi Arabia this plays a, yeah. an important religion plays an important role as well right 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 and it's in fact In Saudi Arabia it was much more um embedded um because mm-hmm. they've been doing it for much longer. Yeah. So in some sense um the way in which um even the sort of educated middle class see their yep. see religion is it's much more ingrained um but their relationship to the mosque is very different than the Turks. Right. For example. Um you know so there it's not one of the things that I find so interesting um in Turkey and thank God it's still there I hope it remains is that you know um a lot of times you'll see families picnicking and the yep. in the uh, courtyards of the mosques you'll see children playing they're actually quite beautiful happy spaces mm-hmm. you know and i think there's something to be said for that there's something that they are capturing that is valuable and i think we can't dismiss it right. um i think sometimes as intellectuals or you know if someone's a secularist sometimes one might look down upon that but it's providing a public space right. that is very much needed and 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 is being enjoyed um 
Some, sometimes that's not always the case. For example, in Saudi Arabia, it yeah. was mostly tourists who were enjoying <laughs> that. And, and so, you know, it's, it's very different. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, thinking about Turkey, it, it came up, we mentioned Gezi already, and we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about it in previous episodes, the, mm-hmm. the destruction of, of parks and sort of yeah. green spaces in cities. I mean, mosques are often studied as a sacred space, but of course they do kind of create yeah. this uh, public space, of course, enjoyed by some more than others, and there's right. political connotations of to course. that. But certainly studying mosques uh, as, as very public um, spaces is, is extremely important, you know, mm-hmm. both in history, but in understanding of a, a, a would-be secularized uh, present. And of course we can see this in, a, in all the different um, cases you look at in your book, but I want to I stay with Turkey sure. uh, in, in sort of ask about the creation of this may not be addressed in your book, but sort of, you know, uh, how this, uh, architectural discourse, if you will, takes on a life of its own, how this aesthetic, mm-hmm. um, uh, through this public engagement, uh, becomes transmitted. Um, because in, in my own, uh, experience, my, my own, um, research works on the Adana region, uh, of Southern Turkey and the city of Adana is, uh, one of mm-hmm. Turkey's largest cities, an important commercial, uh, an industrial city, which since the late Ottoman period has been mm-hmm. shaped by, uh, capitalism really. Right. Right. Uh, and, and in, and in that city, you have this enormous neo-Ottoman mosque, uh, that was constructed, uh, by the Sabanja family, which uh-huh. is really one of the pro- sure. prototypical, not necessarily state aligned, but just, you know, capitalist, uh, families of the emergent, uh, Turkish bourgeoisie that was created, uh, in the aftermath of the first world war. Uh, and I know that you mentioned, uh, in your book, um, in Lebanon, some, mm-hmm. and the mosque, um, yes, the, 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 the Hariri's uh, built, you know, yes, it's, a, exactly. it's a state mosque, but this is also a, a business family. This is a right. commercial family. And of course, right. in the Emirates and Saudi, you have similar exactly. things. So I'm, I'm, maybe you could reflect for us a little bit on the, the inner linkings, uh, uh uh, of capitalism or how this language that's employed by states uh, is uh, used by uh, corporations and, uh, and, and businessmen in, in the Middle right, East. Right, right, right. Well, ab- no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I touch upon it very little. Um, so, you know, part of when you write a book such as this is that you hope everyone else will come and write yeah. the sequel um, and write more because I think I, I'm really just scratching the surface mm-hmm. um, in this project. Um, and you're absolutely right. So, and it's in all cases, right? In whether we're looking at Saudi Arabia, whether we're looking at Turkey, um, that you have uh, this emergent, wealthy elite that are do not see themselves as entirely secularist, right? Mm-hmm. So they have an investment in the religious sphere. Um, yeah. They are not uh, sort of because certainly I know in Turkey from colleagues and friends that for some it's a you know religion is a dirty word. You know you would never say you're a Muslim. You know you would never. There's a real sense. There's a, a real tension between one's identity as a Muslim or as a Turk. You know, yeah. and that's something that has been is is very. I'm very sensitive to that. But there are now more and more people for whom that tension is is not the same. Let's just put it that sure. way. You know, yeah. and and again your. Um, Listeners are experts in a way that I'm not, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. But the point being that you do have this linking with a particular class of people, I think, for whom religion is is uh, accessible in a way that it wasn't before, um, and who are making it, who are very comfortable wearing their Islam on their mm, sleeves, okay. right, or on their head, um, or in the way in which they. Uh, negotiate their world um, and they don't see it as anachronistic or mm-hmm. troublesome. That in itself might be a problem, <laughs> but um, I think it, it's a different kind of uh, um, attitude. Um, 
But I think you also raise a really important other point that these are huge undertakings, right? So, for example, to uh, much of the work for the Turkish mosque that was built in Tokyo was done in Istanbul. It was then brought to Turkey, to Tokyo, to Japan. Um, multinational, uh, you know, um, firms were involved for yeah. the construction of these. The same thing in Ashgabat, same thing in Washington D.C. Um, that you have huge sort of you know m- movement, not just of people but of money, of capital, and of resources that are involved in these transnational mosques, and yeah. they're very much at the heart of the, this project. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Professor Kishvar Rizvi talking about her new book, The Transnational Mosque. I want to remind our listeners to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to get a link where you can uh, find that book as well as uh, other, uh, a short reading list uh, associated with today's podcast. So, Professor Rizvi, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about uh, sort of an emergent architectural form associated with um, the projects of, of nation states uh, in the Middle East, uh, nation states in some sense anyway, states mm-hmm. um, uh, building mosques uh, both at home and abroad. Um, but Throughout the conversation, there's been inklings that some aspects of the transnational mosque are not entirely uh, new, not entirely um dated to a very contemporary or recent period. We talked about the supermarket in the Ankara mm-hmm. Mosque and how we see echoes of commercial spaces in, in past mosques. And we talked about um, building projects maybe by uh, modern uh, mm-hmm. businessmen who are very mm-hmm. much emulating um, the building projects that occurred um, under wealthy patrons and households in the Ottoman period. Very good, yeah. And so I'm wondering... Uh, is there a, a, a deeper history to the transnational mosque that, that tells us something about the history of Islam uh, and uh, without maybe directly talking about modernity, but uh, mm-hmm. sort of how the, the early modern uh, Middle East uh, and Islamic world uh, is connected uh, to the present we know today? That's a very difficult question. I'm always a little hesitant to overgeneralize, you know, yeah. or to to make too close a connection with the past because we see echoes, but it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would argue is that these buildings um, are extremely contemporary. Yeah. They're really responsive to the present, to the present political, social, economic, um, and cultural context. And each of the them is very different you know so even when turkey builds a mosque in tokyo it's very different and it'll function differently from the one in berlin or the one in istanbul mm-hmm. or the one in ankara yeah. right so even within turkey the one in ankara is very different from the one in istanbul it's dealing with different communities different types of pressures are being mm-hmm. exerted sure. whether it's sort of urbanism whether you know the mimar sinan mosque that is now built in this extremely overbuilt urban new city almost within mm-hmm. Istanbul and Iskudar, um, that is uh, very much about 2013 to 16. It's very much about today, you know? Um, so I think we do see echoes, but in some sense we have to sort of see them beyond the image, mm-hmm. right? So 
and which is why I wanted to add also the term the transnational precisely because yeah. it's such a curious term. It's not yeah. historical per se, and mm-hmm. I think it's very much about a very different type of present that these buildings are responding sure. to. Um, and again, I think it's also important to note, um, of course, as a historian. Uh, the impetus for me was to wonder why why do the Safavids exist today mm-hmm. in such a strong, um, vibrant, and healthy yeah. and robust way, <laughs> right? Or why the Ottomans still yeah. so uh, full of potential as a symbol, as a historical moment. It's, it's so dense um, and so productive in terms of contemporary identities. Yeah. Um, but I'd hesitate to... Uh, I'd hesitate to say that this would be the same moment as the 16th century right. in any way. You know what I mean? And I would not say that that Islam, although, again, you know, contemporary governments or, and theocratic states alike um, are are trying to suggest that there's a timelessness to Islam, yeah. but I don't believe it. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, of course... As historians, we, we have don't to see exactly, the past that way. exactly. But I think what is important to note is that for Muslims who are going to these mosques, mm-hmm. why are they not troubled by it, right? So, in a sense, there is this expectation that the new mosque you're going to build in your neighborhood will not look like a modernist, you know, uh, sculpture. It will look like an Ottoman mosque. Increasingly so, yes. Right? So, very much. So, so yes, of course, there are exceptions. Um, yeah. The Cologne Mosque and so on, um, that is also built by the Turkish government. But that you, there is certainly now more and more conservatism in terms of what people want from their mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, some of the cases in your work speak to the ways in which sort of imperial. Uh, right, a lot of the mosques we associate with associate with Sinan are sort of Ottoman imperial mosques mm-hmm. built to assert Ottoman uh, presence in urban landscapes. We have a great episode with Hagnar Watanpa about mm-hmm. that subject with regard to Aleppo. But sort of how nations uh, adopt that sort of imperial, mm-hmm. uh, the prior imperial um, uh, aesthetic to a certain effect. So I'm wondering about the discontinuity there that. Uh, Right. That separates uh, right, right, right. Those vernaculars. Well, well, also the fact that well, there are two things happening. The one is a particular kind of typological um, sort of resurgence, right? Mm-hmm. So why the mosque? Um, as you know, Annabel Wharton has worked on the Hilton's hotels that in the 1950s were being built in Istanbul, in Cairo, yeah. in Jerusalem. You know, so there was a particular kind of a corporate. American mm-hmm. image that was being disseminated and that was transnational, right? So you could talk about the Hilton hotels as transnational hotels or a particular kind of uh, an aesthetic. So I think the question more is pr- more productive when we wonder why the mosque now, yeah. right? Not so much the fact that it's transnational because I think that is a very common trope. Um, mm-hmm. And historically, again, you know, you can see this in the medieval period. You know, mm-hmm. you can see this kind of mobility of images and ideas yeah. um, throughout time. Um, what is interesting is it's no longer uh, multinational banks, uh, mm-hmm. city bank or city core. It's no longer Hilton hotels that are defining the global. Um, but the religious buildings, and mm. I think that's an important question to ask: Why? Indeed, I think it, I think it 
is and will continue to be a central question in the study of the Islamic world and Middle East studies, uh, as it has been uh, now for quite some time, as, as, as this trend uh, continues to, um, in many ways, uh, define the politics and the everyday life uh, uh, of much of the Middle East region. And while we haven't been able to touch on every aspect of this uh, groundbreaking work on the subject, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast and speaking to us today about the case of Turkey, of course, of immense important importance to much of our audience, and also kind of tying it into the, these larger questions. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was very enjoyable. Now, for our listeners who want to learn more about the topic, we've got a reading list on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a link to the Transnational Mosque, Architecture and Historical Memory in the Contemporary Middle East, out from North Carolina University Press. There's other books there as well. Uh, you'll also find some photographs that we've supplied as a companion, a visual companion to this podcast, uh, which is part of our larger Visual Past series. We encourage you to check out some of the past episodes in that series if you haven't seen them already uh, and uh, invite you to subscribe to that series which has its own separate uh, link on our on iTunes. As a final reminder, uh, I'll also direct our listeners to our Facebook page. We've got over 20,000 fans following our latest content and commenting on some of the more provocative elements of our episodes in a very constructive manner. Uh, there's a lot of great conversations going on there on Facebook. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you to join in next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>